and welcome to Misinformation, the trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi. So, um, you know, we're still, we're still in that, in that time of our friendship where like we had a big fight uh, um, and then yeah. now everything's okay. Mm-hmm, yeah. But it's like, you know, it's still like a little awkward. Yeah. We still need to like warm up, Ooh. you know? <laughs> Um, it's not like we're bros and we can just punch each other. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we're we're ladies and we we're more emotionally intelligent mm-hmm. than that. So I give ourselves that credit. Um, <laughs> and our po- our podcast listeners are going to be very privy to this. Um, but uh, I was thinking about how <laughs> I had admitted that I pretend like I know things mm-hmm. all the time because I have a lot of trivia facts that I tell people. But then when I don't know things especially with movies, because I haven't seen a lot yeah. of them, as you all know. I just go like, ha, 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 ha. So at work the other day, um, my coworker, who is the director of collections, he's an older man, George. Mm-hmm. He's not listening to this. He doesn't like me. Um, but he, he, he made a reference. He does not love cool trivia. No, he does not love cool trivia. He has no interest. Um, he said something about the, the Dust Bowl. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, the Dust Bowl, <laughs> super dusty. Sooners. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, so dusty. Because at one point, I, he openly berated me in a meeting because I said that birch trees didn't live very long. And he literally laughed in my face about that. He was like, ha! Ah! And then he... <laughs> immediately corrected me and then for the rest of the meeting kept murmuring under his breath like Lauren doesn't know that birch trees last a long time I can't believe that she's in her 30 like under his breath and I was sitting next to him I was like okay that's enough anyway how did I get on the subject I'm very bitter about George making fun of me for not knowing he said dust bowl at work dust bowl at work so I after making a flawless lie mm. about how I definitely knew what the Dust Bowl was. I was like, you know what? My next topic, it's going to be the Dust Bowl. See, I'm very bad at the fake look. I Like, you'll know right away if I do not know what you're talking about. Um, well, I mean, that could be a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah. It means you're, you're not a good liar, which means that you're a trustworthy person. Hey. Yeah. I, on the other hand... <laughs> Um, do my You're research. You're a confabulator, <laughs> yes. if you will. I am a confidence woman <laughs> about my knowledge of things. So um, my topic today is going to be called the Dirty 30s, the Dust Bowl. I'm a Dust Bowl refugee, just a Dust Bowl refugee. <laughs> it was actually called the Dirty 30s, That's very by the way. good. Um, so here's a question. Mm-hmm. Why is the Dust Bowl so dusty? Mm. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about that. Um, so first of all, in terms of like the term Dust Bowl, it refers to both the region of the continental United States where the dust storms occurred mm-hmm. and the event itself. So i.e. that happened during the Dust Bowl. Great. So from here on out, when I refer to the Dust Bowl, it's going to mean be the event. So the Dust Bowl affected 100 million acres of land that centered on the panhandles of Texas and Oklahoma, and it touched adjacent sections of New Mexico, Colorado, and Kansas, which is also known as the Great Plains of the United States. So early explorers called it the Great American Desert and found it unsuitable for traditional European farming techniques. So it was most, it was probably one of the last 
areas to be settled Mm -hmm. in the Western United States in like any real way. Um, This region is historically semi-arid, which means it receives less than 20 inches of rain annually. And this rainfall supports the short grass prairie biome originally present in the area, which means that there wasn't a lot, there's not a lot of trees, but there's plenty of short shrubs and grasses. You have that in your Mm -hmm. mind, the the, imagining the plains. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, This region is also prone to extended drought, alternating with unusual wetness of equivalent duration. Mm. Um, During wet years, the rich soil provides bountiful agricultural output, but crops fail during dry years. The region is also subject to high winds. As you may imagine, this is foreshadowing. (laughs) So um, if it was so deserty and dry, why were there so many people there in the first place? Yeah, why would you go there? Well, let me tell (laughs) you. In the 1860s, the federal government was encouraging westward expansion, as you know. Um, and so I was there. You were there. Mm-hmm. Again, eternal. Uh, she passed. <laughs> she passed. Julia herself passed. <laughs> she, meaning, flag. she meaning our United States, our girl, US of A, uh, passed the Homestead Act of 1862, which offered settlers 160 acre plots in the Great Plains. It's pretty good. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's solid. Do a lot with 160 acres. Yeah, you could farm it. You could put cows on it. You could just build a really big house. Oh, yeah. (laughs) 160 acre house. It's not like we have electricity to worry about. Yeah, exactly. What I learned, (laughs) I was doing my research, and you know how like, when you're doing research, they put it in, like if they they put temperature in both Fahrenheit and Celsius, you know, that kind of thing. So I didn't know this because I'm a, We'll call me a city mouse. Um, uh, it's when they would kid. put like acres, 160 acres, mm-hmm. and then in parentheses, they would put like 130 hectares. Mm-hmm. But did you know that the abbreviation for hectares is HA? So for like a split second when I was reading it, I was like, why is that so funny? Like, like, <laughs> like 160 <laughs> acre, 130. Uh-huh. Like, <laughs> like, what a joke. <laughs> what a joke. These people thought they were getting 160 acres, but they're getting 130. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I find that so funny. It's pretty good. Um, so well, I will not be speaking in hectares today. Oh, okay. Just Thank acres. Goodness. I know. Whew. Well, I wouldn't be able to get through this. So with the end of the Civil War in 1865 and the completion of the first transcontinental railroad in 1869, waves of new migrants and immigrants reached the Great Plains and they greatly increased the acreage under cultivation. An unusually wet period in the Great Plains mistakenly led settlers and the federal government to believe that, quote, rain follows the plow. That was a popular phrase among real estate promoters at the time, which just goes to show you should never trust a realtor. Um, (laughs) Hey, Kevin. And that the the climate of the region had changed permanently, um, which was foolish that they were like, oh, this place has been dry for a while, but now Now it's wet. Now that we're here. It will be rain forever uh, and we will be happy. What an unfortunate timing, I guess. Oh my gosh. Can I tell you? Well, I'll talk about that in like just a second, but seriously, like the worst timing. Mm. So while initial agricultural endeavors were primarily cattle ranching, the adverse effect of harsh winters on the cattle beginning in 1886, a a short drought in 1890, and general overgrazing led many landowners to change over their land from grazing to farming. Okay. 
So uh, recognizing the challenge of cultivating marginal arid land, the United States government expanded on the 160 acres offered under the Homestead Act, granting 640 acres to homesteaders in western Nebraska. I know. Under the Kincaid Act, which was 1904. That's so much more land. Oh my gosh, so much more land. It's huge. Well, there's a lot of land. Basically a whole city at that point. Yeah. And it, but there was plenty of land out there and they wanted people to like settle in mm-hmm. so that they can displace the Native Americans, amongst mm-hmm. other things. Um, so they were like, yeah, take as much as you want. We don't even care. <laughs> it's so dry. <laughs> so <laughs> we're not moving there, yeah. but you guys you, can. Please, you Germans mm. can. You guys are used to that, oh, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was a lot of immigrants. Mm-hmm. So. Um, and 320 acres elsewhere in the Great Plains under the Enlarged Homestead Act of 1909. So people, so it was almost too good to be true. Yeah. Like these it, poor people in the, the East Coast or, you know, people mm-hmm. who were like, I'm going to find my, my living out there in the Great West. And immigrants who came to this country with a dream for a better oh life. Oh, my gosh, and yeah. were, here you go. Yeah, they like, came here. Here, here's a bunch of land. acres. Go to town. Or 300 ha. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to change the measurement every time. Please too, do, by the way. Um, wa- <laughs> waves of European settlers arrived in the plains at the beginning of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. So it was just a ton of people. Um, a return of unusually wet weather seemingly confirmed a previously held op- opinion that the formerly semi-arid area could support large-scale agriculture. At the same time, uh, technological improvements such as mechanized plowing and mechanized harvesting made it possible to operate larger properties without increasing labor costs. Was the cotton gin there too? Oh yeah. There was Eli Whitney's cotton gin. Oh yeah. All over the place. The commercials on TV, like come on down to Whitney's cotton gin emporium. (laughs) Two for the price of one this weekend only. It's president's day sale. (laughs) (laughs) So everything's great. You got great rains. You got rich, loamy soil. Ooh, good yeah, word. I know. I mm-hmm. like that. Um, it's They're like, this is the best. This is mm-hmm. the promised land. Perfect. However. Ugh, there was always going to be a however. I know. Well, you know. The combined effects of the disruption of the Russian Revolution, which decreased the supply of wheat and other commodity crops, and World War I increased agricultural prices. And this demand encouraged farmers to dramatically increase cultivation. Uh, for example, in the Llano Estacado of eastern New Mexico and northwestern Texas, the area of farmland was doubled between 1900 and 1920 and then tripled again between 1925 and 1930. Oof. So the agricultural methods favored by farmers during this period created the conditions for large-scale erosion under certain environmental conditions. So the Yikes. widespread conversion of the land by deep plowing and other soil preparation methods to enable agriculture eliminated the native grasses, which actually they were very important to the oh, land yeah. at the time because yeah. they, their roots held the soil in place and helped to retain moisture during the dry periods, mm-hmm. which is why they grew there in the first place. Right. Uh, furthermore, cotton farmers, that's cotton gin, uh, they left fields bare during winter months and when winds in the high in the high plains are the highest and burn the stubble as a means to control weeds prior to planting, thereby depriving the soil of organic nutrients and surface vegetation. So my next top. So my next, Eli Whitney. Yeah. <laughs> Eli Whitney, you know, got all his cotton gins, packed them up on his jalopy and headed west to California. <laughs> I don't know why Let's I'm like, them. I'm like treating him like a con man. <laughs> you know, he's like, very important to the agricultural, you know, of the 19th and 20th century. So my next section is called For Whom the Dust Comes. So, yes. Oh, no. Uh. <laughs> You're a very good Foley artist. She just uses 
Only uses her mouth, everyone. Just an FYI. <laughs> Um, so after a favorable decade or so of mild winters and good rainy seasons, the region entered an unusually dry era in the summer of 1930. Mm. This, unfortunately, as you know, coincided with the stock market crash of October of 1929. Mm. So this was just a bad time all around for Americans. Yep. So during the next decade, the Northern Plains suffered four of their seven driest calendar years since 1895. Kansas, four of its 12 driest, and the entire region south to West Texas lacked any period of above normal rainfall until record rains hit in 1941. So this is oh a solid gosh. 20 years of like very, very dry. And so, they stayed there. Well, okay. not really. So when severe drought struck the Great Plains region in the 1930s, it resulted in erosion and loss of topsoil because of farming practices at the time, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, the drought dried the topsoil, and over time it became friable, which is okay. that term I taught you all. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. You never um, heard that word before. Uh, reduced to a powdery consistency in some places. It's very, like, broken. It's very um, delicate. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, without the indigenous grasses in place, the high winds that occur on the plains picked up the topsoil and created the massive dust storms that marked the Dust Bowl period. There it is. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> the persistent dry weather caused crops to fail, leaving the plowed fields exposed to wind erosion. Uh, the fine soil of the Great Plains was so easily eroded and carried east by strong continental winds. So on November 11th of 1933, a very strong dust storm stripped topsoil from desiccated South Dakota farmlands in just one of a series of severe dust storms that year. Beginning on May 9th, 1934, a strong two-day dust storm removed massive amounts of Great Plains topsoil in one of the worst such storms of the Dust Bowl. The dust clouds blew all the way to Chicago, where what? they deposited 12 million pounds of dust. Two days later, the same storm reached cities to the east, such as Cleveland, Buffalo, Boston, New York City, and Washington, D.C. That winter, 1934-1935, red snow fell on New England <gasps> because of the dust. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So that wasn't even the worst of it. On April 14th, 1935, it was known as Black Sunday. 20 of the worst black blizzards occurred across the entire sweep of the Great Plains from Canada south to Texas. The storm hit the Oklahoma Panhandle and northwestern Oklahoma first and moved south for the remainder of the day. It hit Beaver around 4 p.m., Boise City around 5.15, and Amarillo, Texas at 7.20. The conditions were the most severe in Oklahoma and Texas panhandles, but the storm's effects were felt in other surrounding areas. The dust storms caused extensive damage and turned the day to night. Witnesses reported that they could not see five feet in front of them at certain points. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Denver-based Associated Press reporter Robert E. Geiger happened to be in Boise City, Oklahoma that day, and his story about Black Sunday marked the first appearance of the term Dust Bowl. And it was actually officially coined by Edward Stanley, who was the Kansas City news editor of the Associated Press while he was um, editing Geiger's news story. Um, he's, and this was, uh, a report from it, the Spearman reporter of 21st March, 1935 quote, Spearman in Hansford County has been literally in a cloud of dust for the past week. Ever since Friday of last week, there hasn't been a day pass, but what the country was besieged with a blast of wind and dirt on rare occasions. When the wind did subside for a period of hours, the air has been so filled with dust. that The town appeared to be overhung by a fog cloud. <sighs> Because of this long siege of dust and every building being filled with it, the air has become stifling to breathe and many people have developed sore throats and dust colds as oh, a result. No. During the 1930s, many residents of the Dust Bowl kept accounts and journals of their lives and of the storms that hit their area. 
Um, quote, people caught in their own yards grope for the doorstep. Cars come to a standstill for no light in the world can penetrate that swirling murk. The nightmare is deepest during the storms, but on the occasional bright day and the usual gray day, we cannot shake from it. We live with the dust, eat it, sleep with it, watch it strip us of our possessions and the hope of possessions. That was a report from Avis D. Carlson of the New Republic. So there was a man named uh, Lawrence Svoboda. Uh, he was a wheat farmer in Kansas during the 1930s, and he experienced the period of dust storms and the effect they had on the surrounding environment and society. His observations and feelings are available in his memoirs, which was known as uh, Farming the Dust Bowl. And uh, he describes an approaching dust storm thusly. At other times, a cloud is seen to be approaching from a distance of many miles. Already it has the banked appearance of a cumulus cloud, but it's black instead of white, and it hangs low, seeming to hug the earth. Instead of being slow to change its form... It appears to be rolling on itself from the crest downward. As it sweeps onward, the landscape is progressively blotted out. Birds fly in terror before the storm, and only those that are strong of wing may escape. The smaller birds fly until they are exhausted, then fall to the ground to share the fate of the thousands of jackrabbits which perish from suffocation. Yeah. It was bad. That's bleak. Guys, it was bleak. So this was... So it was like the... Like the modern day equivalent would be like a very bad sandstorm. Yes. Like in like in the, in the, in the Middle East. East. Yeah. Yes. Wow. And what was terrible about it is, um, dust is lighter than sand mm. for, I would say like for the most part, mm-hmm. I'm not going to, I'm not going to make like, uh, over mm. like an Point overarching oh, statement one, about that. Two, four density, viscosity <laughs> yeah, yeah. over. Yeah. I'm certainly not going meters. to go there. But it would hang, like like they said, it would hang in the air even oh, when the wind gosh. would stop. It would mm-hmm. just like, it would permeate the air. So you couldn't escape it no matter where you were. And that's terrifying. Wow. Um, so many families were forced to leave their homesteads uh-huh. and travel to other areas seeking work. Um, this began to happen in earnest around 1935 since the drought wasn't looking like it was going to let up anytime soon. A lot of people didn't really have a lot of options. So they were like, well, let's just hang on. Maybe next year will be better. Um, And then five years into it, they were like, we're literally starving. We just ate our last potato. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And people were, they were, they were literally broken starving. So more than 500,000 Americans were left homeless and over 350 houses had to be torn down after one storm alone. Uh, the severe drought and dust storms had left many homeless. Others had their mortgages foreclosed by banks or felt they had no choice but to abandon their farms in search of work. Many Americans migrated west lurking for work, and parents packed up jalopies with their families and a few personal belongings and headed west. Some residents of the plains, especially in Kansas and Oklahoma, fell ill and died of dust, pneumonia, or malnutrition. Oh, I was going to ask. Yeah, it gets in your lungs. And... um. It's uh, like your lungs are like very delicate. So if you get anything in there, <laughs> even if you get like just a little something in there, mm-hmm. it's, it's very bad. It's super mm-hmm. bad. Because it's a, you need them. Yeah, you need both of them, unfortunately. So um, the Dust Bowl exodus was the largest migration in American history within a short period of time. Whoa. Between 1930 and 1940, approximately 3.5 million people moved out of the Plains states. Of those, it is unknown how many moved to California altogether. But in just over a year, over 86,000 people migrated to California. Yeah. Do you know if they all went west or if any of them returned to the East Coast? too? Well, some, it seems like most people went west. Okay. Um, They were already like, you know. If yeah, they were already that far. Yeah, they were like, oh, well, you know, we're going to get to the closest <laughs> where there the isn't ocean. any dust. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, I think not all, it says not all migrants, migrants travel long distances. Some simply went to the next town or County. Okay. Cause maybe they had family mm-hmm. or it wasn't as bad there yeah, or whatever. They were like by a water source or something. Yeah, exactly. Might've been better. Um, so yeah, it was a lot of people migrated and, uh, that number is more than the number of migrants to that area during the 1849 gold rush. Wow. Uh, migrants abandoned farms in Oklahoma, Arkansas, Missouri, Iowa, Nebraska, Kansas, Texas, Colorado, and New Mexico. But a they lot were of states. Yeah, uh, they were often generally referred to as Okies, um, Arkies, or Texies. Mm-hmm. Um, terms such as Okies and Arkies came to be known in the 1930s as the standard term for those who had lost everything and were struggling the most during the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so many families left their farms around the move that the proportions between migrants and residents were nearly equal in the Great Plains states. Um, so, how did they solve this problem at the yeah. end of the day? How did they? How? So, we don't hear about these <laughs> swirling dust storms knocking down houses. And- not, not so much anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the greatly expanded participation of government in land management and soil conservation was an important outcome from the disaster, obviously. Yay. Um, So different groups took many different approaches to responding to identify areas that needed attention. Groups such as the soil conservation service generated detailed soil maps and took photos of the land from the sky to create what's known as shelter belts to reduce soil erosion. Groups such as the United States forestry services, Prairie States forestry project planted trees on private land. That's great. Yeah. Finally, groups like the Resettlement Administration, which later became the Farm Security Administration, encouraged small farm owners to resettle on other lands if they lived in drier parts of the plains. So during President FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's first 100 days in office in 1933, his administration quickly initiated programs to conserve soil and restore the ecological balance of the nation. By the way, Katie Weaver just wrote another great interview, and it's with uh-huh. Cardi B. Yeah. And apparently, like in the first... I would, I'm excited to hear this. Uh, it's so good. Here. There's, this is a, there is a connection uh-huh. to this paragraph that I just read. FDR and the Dust Bowl. The first story... <laughs> that Katie Weaver says about mm-hmm. Cardi B is that she says she's like eating dinner and she's talking to Katie Weaver and she goes, you know who I love? I love. And then she pauses. And Katie's like, what are you going to say? I cannot yeah. wait to hear mm-hmm. what you're going to say. And she said, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. <laughs> she knows she loves the presidents. <gasps> Cardi B is a presidential Cardi B and nut. I have one thing in common. You do. Also, you both can spit like nobody's business. <laughs> oh my God. This girl, she won't. She won't, I she won't, won't do say anything, but she can spit. Oh my God. Her raps are so fresh. <laughs> can, did I sound even, can I sound ever whiter? <laughs> but no, she loves the presidents. I'll send you the link to it. Cause it's very yeah. funny. I'll, I'll tweet it out too. I mean, I'm sure you guys have read it, but it's very good anyway. So yeah, Cardi B knows a lot about the presidents and she's a big fan of FDR. That's great. <sighs> Rich I tapestry. No idea. It's wonderful. So anyway, FDR, (laughs) New Deal. (laughs) So as part of New Deal programs, Congress passed the Soil Conservation and Domestic Allotment Act in 1936, requiring landowners to share the allocated government subsidies with the laborers who worked on their farms so that the subsidies Mm -hmm. were being distributed to as many people as humanly possible. Oh, that's that's what a great idea that is. What some trickle-down economics, if I ever heard. (laughs) Yeah, right. To stabilize prices, the government paid farmers and ordered more than 6 million pigs to be slaughtered. (laughs) 
Um, oh. There's a reason for this. <laughs> it wasn't just like, ah, FDR hates pigs. Everyone kill your pigs. Um, it paid to have the meat packed and distributed to the poor and hungry. Mm-hmm. So the Federal Surplus Relief Corporation, or the FSRC, was established to regulate crop and other surpluses. The FSRC diverted agricultural commodities to relief organizations. Apples, beans, canned beef, flour, and pork products were distributed through local relief channels, and cotton goods were later included to clothe the needy. Um, In 1935, the federal government formed a drought relief service to coordinate relief activities, and the DRS bought cattle in counties which were designated emergency areas for $14 to $20 a head. Hmm. Um, The DRS assigned the remaining cattle to the Federal Surplus Relief Corporation to be used in food distribution to families nationwide. Although it was difficult for farmers to give up their herds, the cattle slaughter program helped many of them avoid bankruptcy, which is the initial point of it and also to feed people. Mm -hmm. Um. So the government cattle buying program was a blessing to many farmers as they could not afford to keep their cattle and the government paid a better price than they could obtain in local yeah, markets. True. President Roosevelt also ordered the Civilian Conservation Corps the to plan... CCC. <laughs> whoop, whoop. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> Big fans. I was, a, I was a CCC member in high school. What can I say? I got a CCC tattoo. Oh, that's so weird. No, I don't. No, I have never heard of them before today. <laughs> <laughs> but man... If you are oh, a member, of the, if you are a member of the Civilian Conservation Corps, or was related to someone who was, because that was eighty years ago. Yeah, if your grandpa, <laughs> <laughs> if your great grandpa, anyway. uh, tweet us at Miss Uh So President Roosevelt ordered the the CCC, the Triple C, mm-hmm. as you call it, to plant a huge belt of more than two hundred million trees from Canada to Abilene, Texas, to break the wind, hold water into the soil, and hold the soil itself in place. What a smart man! I know he's a genius. The administration also began to educate farmers on soil conservation and anti-erosion techniques, such as crop rotation and other improved farming practices. Uh, In 1937, the federal government began an aggressive campaign to encourage farmers in the Dust Bowl to adopt planting and plowing methods that conserved the soil. Um, The government paid reluctant farmers a dollar an acre to practice the new method, so they were incentivized. 76 cents. Uh (laughs) Aha. You're so good at the conversion in your head. You're just like, bam, that's how much haas there Uh are. (laughs) So uh, by 1938, the massive conservation efforts had reduced the amount of blowing soil by 65%, which is pretty good. Uh, However, the land still failed to yield a decent living. Um, And in the fall of 1939, after nearly a decade of dirt and dust, the drought ended when regular rainfall finally returned to the region. So a lot of it had to do with just the natural cycle of the rainy, the rains in that area really saved a lot of people, but it took them, you know, 10 years or whatever. I bless the rains down in the great plains of the United States. Oh yeah. Actually, we should do that at at karaoke some night. Um, I have no idea what we're talking about. Yeah. I don't go to karaoke. Uh, The government still encouraged continuing the use of conservation methods to protect the soil and ecology of the plains. So, um, you have definitely heard of the Dust Bowl, um, partially because it was, the crisis was documented by photographers, musicians, and authors. Mm -hmm. Um, many were hired during the great depression by the federal government. And I didn't know this. Mm -hmm. Um, the farm security administration hired numerous photographers to document the crisis. So artists such as Dorothy Lang, um, they were aided by having salaried work during the depression and she captured what have become classic images of the dust storms and migrant families, um, and of course, her most well-known photograph is destitute pea pickers in California, mother of seven children. Oh, yeah. 
which depicted a gaunt looking woman, Florence Owens Thompson, Mm -hmm. which was her name holding three of her children. That's the one of the woman who looks very sad and she's kind of gently cradling her face. Um, This picture expressed the struggles of people caught by the Dust Bowl and raised awareness in other parts of the country of its reach and human cost. Um, Apparently, uh, Thompson, the woman in the photo, disliked the boundless Mm -hmm. circulation of the photo and resented the fact she did not receive any money from its broadcast, which is kind of ironic. Well, it was a government-taken photo, so it's there is no copyright when the government takes it. Yeah. Actually, I'm jumping in here. No, please. So... um, when and basically anything produced for the national government, you can't copyright it. So there mm. have been a lot of prolific photographers actually who were hired by the government in the early 20th century. So Ooh, cool. Ansel Adams, Lewis Hines, oh, okay. um, all these people that their photos are in the national archives because they're part of a government funded project. And so like you'll see, you know, online somebody selling a print of like an Ansel Adams photograph for like $400 you can order it from the National Archives for like 25 bucks. Get out of yeah, here. Because it's, you know, it's in yeah. their holdings and it's, there's no copyright on it or whatever. Like you can just like order an art print from NARA. Oh my God. You heard it here first, guys. If you've been information by an online <laughs> distributor of Ansel Adams photographs, you should call the government call, about that. Call NARA. Call NARA. They will not be happy to hear that. But yeah, so the, yeah, that famous photograph... Yeah, yeah, it's kind of. I can I can see how that woman would feel that she was maybe. I wouldn't say exploited necessarily, no. but like that her image was was used as like such an iconic image of this time period. Yeah, without any, you know. Yeah, and any I, real recognition of her, but yeah, and again, it's not like anybody had any idea that that would become mm-hmm. like the yeah, seminal exactly. photograph, the seminal image it's, of the Dust they, Bowl. They sent out all these photographers to document yeah. either the national parks or people living, and exactly. there's a lot of stuff with the you know ex- exactly with the farmers mm-hmm. and um, you know uh, the spread of the country in the early 20th century. Yeah, because we didn't have the internet. Yeah, yeah. And now people would just be. Taking selfies Insta in stories. the Dust Bowl. Like, oh my like, God, like there's so much with a really cute bandana. Oh, yeah, you got to get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, or the, but those. they have their Snapchat filter, filter. on. <laughs> so they have like the dog ears. And then the filter, you know, like the, the geotags in the Snapchat filter. It'd be like, Oklahoma Dust Bowl. So dusty. And like, this Okie's okay. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You're... You are a idea machine tonight. Mm. So that was my, <laughs> so that was my very deep, dark, and alternately funny um, topic on the dirty thirties. That's very exciting. I mean, it's very important to, that for Absolutely. us to recognize that all of these changes happen, especially during the the New Deal, to uh-huh. be able to fix stuff like this, so that we're not suddenly besieged by a three day. Yeah. Storm of topsoil. Exactly. Terrible. Oh, actually, you know what? I have another page. Sorry. <laughs> not a actually, whole... she's not done. <laughs> it's not a whole page. It's just a couple of extra uh-huh. tidbits. Hit, him up. Hit me. Um, so um, many of the songs of folk singer Woody Guthrie, such as those on his 1940 album Dust Bowl Ballads, are about his experiences in the Dust Bowl era during the Great Depression when he traveled with displaced farmers from Oklahoma to California and learned their traditional folk and blues songs, earning him nicknamed the Dust Bowl Troubadour. I didn't know this because I have heard Woody Guthrie and I've heard Arlo Guthrie. Yeah. They are. Sland is your land. Yeah. But the thing that I don't understand is, I mean, I don't know what it is about the Guthries, but they are, they are disassociated from time in my mind. Like 
Woody Guthrie, in my mind, could it be anywhere from like 1890 okay, to like sure. 1987. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I have no idea where he is in time and space. And frankly, I don't want to know. Um, <laughs> but I guess I just found out. Ladies and gentlemen, Woody Guthrie. <gasps> oh, my God. <laughs> he's here at the podcast. Oh, he's still alive. Tell me about the Dust Bowl, Woody. Um, <laughs> so, so that's interesting. Now I know he was around during the Dust Bowl. Great. Arlo is his son? son. Is he still alive? No, I wouldn't. I don't know. I wouldn't place money on him being alive. Okay. So, well, that's so weird because here he is. Oh my Whoa! god, Arlo Guthrie, tell me about your dad. Back from the dead. <laughs> um, also, last thing: uh, the 2014 science fiction film Interstellar. Great movie. Ah, yes. Um, I see. I didn't see it, and I'm acknowledging that. <laughs> it's not that I don't acknowledge. <laughs> Julia, it's just sometimes I just keep it to myself to just to keep the peace. That's all. Anyway, Interstellar is very good. I, I heard it was very good. I think I didn't see it because you guys were going to go see it on IMAX. And I was like, I can't, I can't watch IMAX. Yeah, no. I and, think that was it. I was like, I don't want to get motion sick. And I just haven't seen it. No, absolutely. It's, I mean, it's very, um, it's, it, it's very immersive. Yeah. But it's also a long movie. Like I think oh. it's almost three hours. So oh, that's I was definitely too many minutes for yeah. me. Give I me was, a give me a ninety five minute movie. Oh yeah, boom in well, and out. That's interesting. You should say that because I discovered that Clue is ninety six minutes. So <gasps> it's the perfect length for you, Julia. Oh my god, this is why it's your favorite movie. <laughs> um, but Interstellar is very good. Great Sorry, soundtrack. Interstellar. No. 2014. It's fine. It's emotional. It's mm-hmm. um, interesting. It's got like some really mind bending science in it. It's very good. I highly recommend. Um, it features a ravaged 21st century America, which is again scoured by dust storms. Mm. Um, it's caused by a worldwide pathogen affecting all crops. So uh, along with inspiration from the 1930s crisis, director Christopher Nolan features interviews from the 2012 documentary, The Dust Bowl, to draw further parallels, mm-hmm. which is the Ken Burns documentary from that oh, year. Okay. And in fact, I haven't seen that either. I haven't seen that either. And I've been meaning to watch it. And I guess is it as long as all the other ones. No, it's not. I think it's only it just it's, one. It's, <laughs> I think it's short. I think it's okay. like four. Um, but what's interesting is, um, and no spoilers at one point later <laughs> in the movie, um, there's like a, uh, oh, like to a, interstellar, not yeah, to the to interstellar documentary. <laughs> <to> the, <laughs> Spoiler alert. Dust. You planted a lot of trees. <laughs> You're pretty safe. Um, Later in the movie, Interstellar, um, there's like a like a historic home, mm-hmm. uh, like going like hearkening back to when it was that time period, okay. um, and there are it's very museum-y, which I was very charmed by. Yeah. They did a really nice job with that. But there are interactive videos throughout mm-hmm. the home that play interviews with people, oh. and it's actually the interviews from the Dust Bowl documentary that they play. Whoa. So it gives a context of, and you, and you hear a little mm-hmm. bit of it as they're like walking through the house. You hear them like, yeah, you know, my mother had a terrible cough and she was, you know, she lived for three more weeks and then she died like that kind of thing. But it was real interviews with people who had survived the dust bowl. Oh gosh. Um, but it was like within the context of that movie. So yeah. I thought it was very, that was clever of him wow. um, to kind of give it a little bit of like a real life mm-hmm. context. The grounding. Mm-hmm. So definitely see Interstellar and definitely see the Dust Bowl. Um, so my quiz today is called Dust to Dust, a quiz on death and dying. So uplifting. I know, right? It's just really dark the whole time. Okay. Question number one. 
Which two states can still legally execute people by firing squad? Question number two. We die with 206 bones in our body, but how many are we born with? Question number three. True or false, your hair and nails continue to grow after death. Question number four. The infamous Day the Music Died occurred in February of 1959 when a plane carrying several famous musicians crashed, killing everyone on board. Who of the following list was not on the plane? Richie Valens, Waylon Jennings, The Big Bopper, or Buddy Holly? Question number five. What is the name of the psychological disorder that makes living people believe they are dead? Question number six. When one dies, what is the last sense to go? Question number seven. What is the leading cause of death for women in developing countries? Question number eight. True or false, the death rattle is a real ass thing. Question number nine. In Greek mythology, it was believed that redheads turned into what when they die? And finally, question number 10. Can you name the top five causes of death in the U.S.? We'll give you a minute to think about it, and we'll be right back with answers. This old town should have burned down in 1929. Well, that's when we stood in the line, waiting for our soup, swallowing our pride. And this old town should have burned down. 1931, when the rain refused to come, air filled up our bellies, and dust filled up our lungs, and we thought our time had come. And this old town was built by hand, in the dust Wow, Lauren. Yeah. I feel I mean, like we should just, I hope that your quiz music was just like a funeral dirge. <laughs> no, I think just it's like going organs. to be. <laughs> um, I think it's going to be. Um, uh, <laughs> no, Steve has a good Dust Bowl song for me from. Um, Is it banjos? No, it's Mary Chapin <laughs> Carpenter. <gasps> yeah, because I was told him what my topic was going to be. And he goes, oh, your, your quiz music should be. And he told me the name of the song. Yeah. Mary Chapin Carpenter. I was like, I don't think I know that one. And then he just and then he launched the into thing. it. That's He's making me, making me empanadas and singing Mary Chapin Carpenter. What a lucky woman. I know, I'm so lucky. <laughs> okay, question number one. Which two states can still legally execute people by firing squad? Utah. Yes. Nevada? Mm, Ohio. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I know. So do not get in trouble in Cleveland because they will shoot your oh, ass. See, I, okay. I feel, I feel like, um, I was listening to a podcast. It might've been my favorite murder if they were talking about a firing squad thing. But, um, I thought that in a firing squad, only one person had a blank and everyone else had real bullets so that you had like the idea that maybe you, oh, didn't you were the have one a real bullet, okay. but actually, there's only one real bullet and everybody else has blanks. 
So it's kind of the inverse, but still the same concept. Yeah. I yeah. guess I thought it was like if there was, you know, if you had 10 guys on the firing squad, yeah. nine of them had real bullets. One of them was fake so that you had like feasibly like maybe your bullet didn't kill the guy. Maybe you had a blank. But actually, again, it's the inverse. <laughs> yeah. And so I could see a lot of that going wrong if only there's only one real bullet. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, I mean... Also, the psychology behind that is just, there's a lot there, you know, <laughs> like, let's not make any of these guys feel guilty. Like right. maybe we should, maybe, I don't yeah, know, we okay. should rethink the whole killing the, the bad people part, you Ooh, know, really? like how should, well, no, no. <laughs> I mean, like, let's figure out how to do that without involving right. too many innocent people. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's yeah. True. And that's why so many states have like outlawed it, but they have grandfathered in people that yes. were, that were in it. So, yeah. um, Okay, question number two. (laughs) I know, it's a close call. Uh, We die with 206 bones in our body, but how many are we born with? All right, so we covered this in the anatomy episode. Mm -hmm. And the answer is like 300, no, 280, 260. It's 270. It's a lot of little things fusing together. Yeah, a Mm -hmm. lot of like little bones Mm -hmm. and it's, mostly in the skull and, you know, stuff like mm-hmm. your spine and things fusing together. So you die with 206, you're born with 270. All right. Question number three, true or false? Your hair and nails continue to grow after death. False. It is false. Um, what actually happens is your skin dries and shrinks, giving the illusion of growth. So there you go. Think about that for a second. Um, <laughs> question number four, the infamous day the music died occurred in February of 1959 when a plane carrying several famous musicians crashed, killing everyone on board, including the pilot. Who of this list was not on the plane? Waylon Jennings was Waylon not on that Jennings. plane. Yep. Uh, he was supposed to be on the plane, but was talked into giving his seat up since the big bopper, whose real name was JP Richardson was feeling ill. Oh, so I think so he, then he had survivor's guilt. He did. He had survivor's guilt for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's still alive. Uh, he... Well, let's ask him. Wayland Jennings. <laughs> Wayland Jennings, everybody. I think, he, I think he's dead now. Okay. Oh, I know his son is still alive. Balin Jennings. <laughs> I know because I he's saw dead? him live. He's dead. Wayland Jennings is dead. Balin. Balin. If you're out there, <laughs> give us a call. Shooter. Shooter Jennings. Oh, okay, shooter. Okay, that's not that different from Balin, okay? <laughs> so I was not that far off. Okay, question number five. What is the name of the psychological disorder that makes living people believe they are dead? Does it have necro in it? No, it does not. I don't know. It's called Cotard syndrome. It's named after the guy who discovered oh, it. Oh, how's that spelled? Uh, C-O-T-A-R-D, Cotard. He was okay. French. Um, it's a relatively rare psychological disorder. It, uh, can include feelings of loss of all your blood, all your organs, <laughs> that your body is putrefying or that you have never existed. All it's very existential. These things are very fascinating. To me. I know me too. Are the people that like, th- like think that they shouldn't have all their limbs. Yeah. Like there are people who are like, I was born an amputee and I hate this leg of mine and I need you to remove it. Yes, and they like have like that. deep psychological issues where they like, I can't be dragging this big old leg around anymore. I need you to take it off of me. And then when they have it removed, they always go overseas. Uh-huh. It's always like some Americans are like, ah, yeah, I can't do that. Like a, a yeah. Here. So they always go somewhere like remote and then they have it s- <sighs> sticked off and then they're like so happy. They feel so much better. I mean, it's, 
I mean, I'm not, I'm not, yeah, ad, like I'm not condoning really, it, but really interesting, like how that would even develop. So right? the fact that you might think that you are dead. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I feel the way if I'm walking down like <laughs> a hallway and people keep running into me. I'm like, am I even here? Yeah, I've done Can that. Can you see me? I'll be in a meeting and I'll be like, I have a question. And then I start my question and then someone else starts talking and then I keep getting ignored and I'm like, am I dead? Did I die? Is this... <laughs> Am I asleep? I've really only had that feeling like twice in my life. And one of them was when I was on a, a trip for the museum and I was at a uh, a donor's house in Georgia mm-hmm. and he was blasting like <laughs> Rammstein on his nine feet tall speakers. Oh and I was God. surrounded by wax figurines and dogs and and it was hot. And I was like, I think... I think I'm in the bad place. I, th- I think I'm dead and I think I'm in the bad, place. To the bad place. Yeah. Well, there was also, I can understand the like existential, like that's a very existential dis- brain disease because I once took too much medication when I was at my uh, former boss, my friend Jeff's Those house. mushrooms. Yeah. This is the time you took mushrooms. mushroom story. No, I, <laughs> it was like legally prescribed medication. And I remember I woke up in the middle of the night and I did not feel like I was myself. Ooh, like weird. I felt like, I, my, my, it's very hard to describe, but like my identity was like free floating elsewhere. And that this body, this like meat sack was just like, I'm awake now. It was terrifying. (laughs) I don't recommend it. Um, (laughs) so everyone watch your dosages and listen to your doctor. Okay. Question number six, when one dies, what is the last sense to go? (laughs) Is it smell? No, it's hearing. Oh. I, I can't, I mean, may, besides taste, I can't imagine any of those was like a super comfortable thing, but there's research based on, um, electroencephalograms, EEGs mm-hmm. of brain waves, uh, that indicates hearing is the last sense to go. So that's why a lot of people who are in palliative care, they say oh. to, even if they're like, they look asleep or okay, to keep talking yeah, to them right. because I they guess can that still makes hear. Sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, question number seven. What I is, really didn't want to think about that. That no. was a really hard, Tough question for you know, me, I'm Laura. Sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm gonna have to watch like Care Bears or something before yeah. I fall asleep. Yeah, definitely tonight. watch something. Go. Oh, well, it's not gonna get any better. We're only on question seven. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, question number seven: What is the leading cause of death for women in developing countries? Heart disease. Oh no, it's childbirth. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, in developing countries. in developing okay. countries. Yes. Um, this is sorry. Also- See, this is an instance of not paying attention to the whole question. No, it's all right. You know what? I forgive you. Um, <laughs> Unlike how you forgave me for not watching Clue. This is also I've forgiven ra- you now. Oh, okay, fine. Whatever. It's a rapidly rising <laughs> statistic in the U.S. amongst minority and poor populations yeah. as well. Um, every ninety seconds, a woman dies from the from childbirth. In the world. In the world. Oh. I know it's awful. Um, question number eight: True or false? The death rattle is a real ass thing. True. True. A dying person may make gurgling noises. In fact, the sound is caused by air passing through mucus pooled in the person's pharynx, which they are unable to shift through coughing because they are too weak. So there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Question number nine in Greek mythology, it was believed that redheads turn into what when they die? That's fun. Uh, Flowers. Mm, No, think darker. (laughs) Hmm. Um, volcanoes. Oh, you're very close. Vampires. The answer is vampires. <laughs> I mean, they both start with the V. I didn't know Greeks had vampires. Apparently they do. Wow. I know. And, um, Mark Twain once said that, um, all 
men, all people descended from apes, but redheads descended from cats. What the and I'm, f- I know. I don't understand what that means either, but I bet because he was an asshole, it had something to do with women. That's all I got to say. <laughs> I bet he was saying something, something snarky and mean, mm-hmm. and it was about some girl that he dated who had red hair. That's all I'm going to say. Um, and finally, question number 10. Julia, can you name the top five causes of death in the U.S.? Okay. I am not requiring it to be in order. Okay. Heart disease. Yes. Accidents. Yes. Um, cancer. Yeah. Uh, two more. I already said accidents. That's the best one. <laughs> uh, well, I already said heart disease. Okay. Just tell me the rest. Okay. Um, so in order. Okay. It's. Heart disease is the mm-hmm. main cause. Then cancer, chronic lower respiratory disease, COPD, uh, accidents, and stroke. stroke. Stroke is the fifth most common cause of death in the U.S. Mm. Accidents is the fourth leading cause of, of death. That's crazy. See, it pays to be an indoor kid. That's all I'm saying. Don't drive in a car. Don't leave your home. Yeah, but like if I choke on a grape, if I go out choking on a grape, that's an accident. Yeah, that's that true. Sucks. You got to cut that's your grapes. That's not even exciting. You got to cut your grapes in half, Julia. We talked about this on this very podcast. You got to <laughs> slice your grapes thin. Oh, boy. Oh, my I goodness. hope you have like an uplifting listener submitted trivia for us. Oh, yeah, I do. So, um, because we got to bring this back up. I know. So, I have a couple of listeners submitted oh, awesome. trivia. Listener submitted trivia. Woo. Um, so I just lost it. Okay. Um, so we've been getting a lot of good um, listener submitted trivia via Twitter. So I want to thank um, a couple of our Twitter followers. And I'm. What is, is there like a term for Twitter followers? Like tweet. Tweetles. Followers. Tweet. Mutuals, maybe? No, that's if you follow each other. That's I have weird. no idea. I'm that's still weird. new to this. Mutuals. Well, you mutually follow each other. Uh, yeah, that's right. I guess that's mm-hmm. weird. <laughs> um, so Heather Her- Heather H., uh, she um, sent us a fact of the day. Excellent. Um, uh, the Simpsons, uh, the original Simpsons episodes don't air in Japan because the characters have four fingers. Hmm. In Japan, having four fingers indicates that you're in the Yakuza, which is the... <laughs> Japanese mafia. Um, it does air, it, it does air there, but, um, it's altered so that the characters have five fingers. That's a lot of work. They I know like 29 seasons of the Simpsons. Yeah. Well, I mean, in each frame, you just got to go bloop. You know how easy to draw a finger like bloop, bloop. Yeah. That's bloop. It's probably, I it. mean, I, I just did like four. Yeah. Um, and then we have, um, another Twitter follower, um, she, uh, her, her Twitter handle has like 18 German names. So it's from the sound of music. Oh, is it? Oh my goodness. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. We'll call you Liesel. Um, her Twitter handle is at SRA and, uh, she sent us a trivia. She said trivia for you, which Andrew Lloyd Webber musical was originally planned as an adaptation of a series of children's books, but Andrew Lloyd Webber couldn't get the rights. And I didn't know because I run the Twitter account. Um, and I guessed cats. Uh, and she said, nope, that's a similar scenario, but not a series. It's Starlight Express and Thomas the Tank Engine. <laughs> and I had never heard of Starlight Express in my oh, whole yeah. life. It's the roller skates one. See, the only roller skates thing that I know is um, Xanadu. Xanadu. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's... Okay, um, there are two roller skates things you should know, I guess. <laughs> 
Okay, so Starlight Express, and yeah. you said that it's it's it was like a circular stage, and the yeah. people on the roller skates were the they're the train. They are the Starlight Express. Oh my gosh, what a stupid thing! Andrew Andrew Lloyd Webber made a bazillion dollars with oh talking gosh. cats. Okay, that's true. Ma, na, na, na. I saw it. Okay, quick story about my mother. My mother's disgusting. <laughs> now, wow! <laughs> no, no. I- I'm not saying like she. Josh ended the episode right <laughs> he was there. Like, That's it. Um, <laughs> no, she um, she has a, a dirty sense of humor. Okay. Because she's a nurse. She's been a nurse for a long time. She, you know, body stuff doesn't bother her mm-hmm. at all. So she's she's jokey and she likes to joke about it. Yeah. So we saw cats at the uh, Princess of Wales Theater up in Toronto when I was like two days after I got my braces on when I was like 14. Okay. So. I was an easily embarrassed preteen. I had metal on my teeth. I was super uncomfortable. We were like second row center. Wow. We saw cats. One, I was, again, easily embarrassed teen. You know how they come out into the, into the audience and they're like, meow, meow. meow. Yeah. I did not like that because a couple of them got in my face and uh, I was not appreciative. Yeah, that's not. It's, I don't uh, like audience participation. Just mm-hmm. perform for me and I will pay you money. Um, but... <laughs> My mother noticed and commented to me several times during the show that the cats mm-hmm. were wearing leotards and there wasn't any um, barrier. Oh. And she, I remember she goes, <laughs> she goes, she leaned over to me and she goes, you can see the lips of her vagina. <gasps> know. Your mother said she this, said to, this you, to me in Toronto, girl? Canada. A teen girl. I was horrified. I was like, Mother. I'm horrified now. I know you should I'm be. I'm horrified you repeated that. <laughs> well, now it's hilarious. Like now I can't, you can't embarrass me. But um, I, I got all the embarrassment out at that age. But yeah, it was horrifying. Wow. But it was 100% true. Like yeah. she was a Siamese mm-hmm. cat. So she didn't have like a lot of like fur oh, paint on mm-hmm. her. So it was very, it was very much a nude suit. She was a beautiful dancer though. God bless her. And a voice like an angel. <laughs> but it's a terrible musical. So anyway, what was I? What are we talking about? Lauren, <laughs> the cast of Cats. <laughs> oh, my God. Memories. <laughs> oh, my God. So anyway, wow. um, if you want to, <laughs> if you want to contact us, <laughs> give us some feedback on this episode. To. Yeah. Or send us more uh, listener submitted trivia. Uh, please do that. We we're getting good stuff all yeah, the time, and we're you. very thank you to Esra Sra, and thank you to Heather, um, a frequent interactor on Twitter. Um, you can email us uh, at misinfopod at gmail You can tweet at us at misinfopod. You can go to our Facebook page, misinformation colon a trivia podcast. Post on our Facebook page. Please do that. Um, if you want to hear more of more of us doing this. <laughs> Julia, For some reason. How can they access that? Uh, you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and whatever podcast app you prefer using our RSS feed. Or you can find us on our website, www.missinfopod.com. Um, and you'll notice that on our webpage and on our Twitter, we have a link to a PayPal. That's our little tip jar. So, um, if you like us and you want to throw a few bucks our way, we'd appreciate it. It'll help us with hosting fees and any equipment upgrades we could use. Yep. And thank you to everyone who has, um, tips so far. We yeah, you guys are absolutely awesome. appreciate you. 
Um, so thank you so much for listening to us go off on a lot of tangents today. Um, and we'll catch you next time. Bye. Thanks guys. Bye.